It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We spent some time focusing on a part of the world that is filled with some of the most mystery and intrigue, particularly for overseas travelers that have ever been there. You know that the sights, the sounds, the noises, the the places certainly capture and tend to cater to absolutely every one of the senses. That said, this part of the world also has one of the fastest growing populations, the fastest growing economies, and the fastest growing branches of the church. We're talking, of course, about the continent of India. And joining me today in studio, who is here on behalf of our friends at Mission India, we are so delighted and pleased to have Pastor Sam with us today. And Pastor Sam, welcome. Good to see you. Thank you, Craig. It's my pleasure to be here in your studio today. We hear so much about India in the news these days, sometimes about politics, sometimes about the skirmishes and challenges taking place in some of the neighboring states, places like Kashmir, certainly Pakistan, uh, certainly much in the news to talk about India as kind of the, the other Silicon Valley, the other major computer hub of the world. But aside from the political questions, the economic questions, the growth that's taking place in India today, there's that other big, important part of the story that I think my listeners in particular are really interested in and concerned about, and that is what God is doing in India today. The growth of the church there. Tell us what's happening. Well, Craig, uh, India is a country with a lot of paradoxes. You are extremely rich. There are extremely poor, extremely educated extremely illiterate, extremely religious, extremely forgotten. This dichotomy, you know, goes on and on in every sector. You talk about politics, economics, social structure, and of course, in the church. There are big churches and we praise God for them. But at the same time, in 1.2 billion people in our country today, only 3.7 know the name of Jesus Christ. And the churches in cities, by and large, in every part of the country, you have a big churches, which are called the mainline churches, mainline denominations. They're more bogged down with a kind of a, a, a work within the compound walls of the church. And the Great Commission work has not been taken seriously so far. That is one of the main reasons why we are unable to reach the unreached, unengaged people groups in our country. There are four 4,635 different people groups in our country. Out of that, only 1,000 of them are reached today. So when you talk about a composite of what the the 1040 window looks like, the Mm -hmm. whole missions opportunity window for the world today, there's probably no better example of the need in terms of the variety of languages and people groups and physical geographical territory and religions than India today. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if India is a microcosm of the, the world missions picture. You're right. Uh, there are people who speak 1,600 different languages and dialects in our country. Wow. And the uh, Bible is very closely translated, to, translated into 100 languages, not more than that. And there is a great opportunity now today because doors are wide open for the gospel, even though... There are persecutions, animosity. 
you know there are oppositions there are kind of state laid laws of anti conversion laws and so on and so forth that's the one side of the story but other side we see the spirit of the lord is speaking uh, sweeping over the country uh, more vibrantly than ever before you know people are seeking for truth for years of their struggle and efforts for finding who's a real god today people are trying to come to a point okay he is a jesus christ is a real true living god you know pastor sam the scripture tells us about the places in which these seeds can be sown and they can go into rocky soil and really not produce much or sand and not much they can also go into fertile soil and then bear forth a strong tree with much good fruit it it, it strikes me given the degree of religiosity we'll call it of, of india uh, Hinduism, of course, the predominant religion there, though mm-hmm. we see a lot of influence of Islam, particularly toward the north. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it can singular to be said of India, one thing for sure, there's a tremendous spiritual hunger amongst the Indian people, isn't there? There is. Um, if you, I mean, since you made a mention of uh, the Hinduism there, you know, uh, we have uh, 300 million gods and goddesses and a lot of gurus moments, you know. Um, not only Indians, you know, the Indian religiosity attracts even the other country people, you know, coming to India to learn about the culture, religion and so on and so forth. And uh, Hindus, you know, they are very, very religious. As you rightly said, they have a deep passion to know the truth, deep passion to know God. And uh, in search of that, they go from place to place, temple to temple. God after God. But at the end of the day, do they have a hope? Do they have a love? Do they have uh, accomplished what they're uh, seeking for? The answer is no. Mm. So there is a kind of a disappointment, kind of a frustration, you know, um, that uh, prevails in uh, in the minds of the people. Well, if you're constantly seeking a God that cannot be found or constantly trying to appease God or to not make God angry at you or jealous, you can readily understand why there's such a tremendous sense of a lack of fulfillment or satisfaction. I, I, the contrast in my first trip into India and in going into a Hindu temple and seeing the priests there oftentimes wearing robes and with uh, – paint on their faces and ringing bells and engaging in incantations and the burning of incense and the lighting of candles and all of this. And I was struck by the knowledge that man is working awfully hard to try and appease God and reach God. But there's a stark contrast between that sense of man trying to reach up to God and the message of Jesus Christ. We were talking a bit about this off the air. Elaborate on that point, would you, particularly in terms of how you go about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with this unknown God, the God of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham? Uh, there is a lot of, uh, um, see, one side we talk about the religiosity and the passion, you know, to know God, reach God, appease God. And the other side, you know, uh, we find what the what the Bible says, what Bible talks about it. You know, um, it's not me going and seeking God. Instead, in the Bible, we find that, you know, God is seeking the lost. The Bible says he has come to the seek the lost. And um, 
it's not god demanding from me something it is me demanding god mm. you know those are the things that you know um uh, or the points where you know um people come in contact with okay i think here is a god who's seeking for me the image of the shepherd leaving the 99 leaving sheep the 99 and you know to find the one one you know that is something it's not me giving sacrifice he has sacrificed for me it's not me doing bloodshed it is he who shed his blood on the cross of calvary so some of these things you know and uh, the one important thing craig here a lot of them they don't understand how how does this beautiful creation has come into existence because there is no mention of the beginning of the world and there is no mention of the ending of the world well and the belief system is very cyclical in that sense mm-hmm. if i have bad karma this time around maybe next time i'll come back it'll be better i'll yeah. be different and the cycle goes over and over and over again that sets up a tremendous sense of hopelessness i would say you're right and somehow they wanted to come out of that cycle and they have no way out and jesus comes and tells that i am the way the truth and the life that is where you know the cycle is broken mm-hmm. in other words they are delivered from the cyclic and now i talk about the beginning and you have an eternal we'll take a brief time out in this juncture in the conversation we'll come back to more of our look at what god is doing in india today our conversation with pastor sam from mission india continues in just a moment here on this edition of lifeline And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. We continue our visit today in studio with Pastor Sam. He is here on a brief uh, visit on behalf of Mission India. As we pick up the conversation, we can say, "Okay, I live my life. I raise my family. I serve my God who died for me." Mm-hmm. And then I go on to a permanent, eternal and never-ending not cycle of frustration and hopelessness that but of reward entering into the temple of all temples right. in very heaven itself with mm-hmm. very god himself I mean, once that message is articulated it's shared and explained is it any wonder that that the average indian the average hindu would say finally now i see that actually allows them to think you know um a lot thought of thought process begins you know because they'd been doing something for years together mm-hmm. and suddenly you know somebody comes and tells that you know this is what is available here and uh, that's what exactly they're looking for for years together where do i get this inter- internal peace where do i get that nirvana a kind of an eternal abord yes you know and you know i come and say you know this is what this is happens uh, with the the life death and the resurrection of lord jesus christ You talked earlier Pastor Samuel about the idea that there is a sense of some of the the old mainline denominational churches that are kind of cloistered. They're kind of behind the walls of the compound so mm-hmm. to speak. And I think there are some strong comparisons with even the church in America as much as we've traditionally historically had a passion for moving beyond Judea into Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. We're still very self-focused on our programs and the numbers of people in the building project and what's the revenue look like this month and things of this sort. And and yet I'm wondering clearly the message is going 
beyond the compound that there are churches and evangelists and pastors like yourself engaged in a movement of the Holy Spirit where either because of the efforts or sometimes in spite of the efforts of the church, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit of God is doing something phenomenal in India today, even with some of the stagnation, as you as you suggest. We are still seeing one of the fastest growing populations of the body of Christ in the continent of India today than anywhere else in the world. What do you attribute that to? Uh, what what does it imply? You know, uh, which means that God is at work. Okay, and uh, secondly, you know, the doors are wide opened, and the word of God says the harvest is plentiful and laborers are few. Now, what we need in in our country today is the laborers who are willing to go. laborers who are willing to work hard in the in in the field of god mission india is an organization you know had been working in india for almost 30 years now and um, they have developed a program that would really take the great commission into the unreached places the end places in our country for the last 30 almost 3 decades for example literacy india as you rightly mentioned right in the beginning that you know people talk about silicon valley fully populated with indians you know if you pick 10 uh, most influential people or the richest people in the world there will be at least two indian names or three indian names there and we praise god for all that but that's not the india you know it's it's a country with a paradoxes 69 percent of rural indian women cannot read and write their own language and india is supposed to be one of the most illiterate nation in the world as for the survey is concerned so you have extremely intellectual but at the same time there are quite a big number of illiterates that of course makes the mission before the church a bit more challenging in the sense that obviously it complicates discipleship if you lead someone to Christ most naturally now want to teach them more about the Jesus whom they are following what better vehicle but by God's word and yet if they're illiterate that sets up a stumbling block so there's more work that has to be done there's a bigger challenge perhaps at some levels that the indian church is facing as contrast to do a church in the first world you know maybe in north america or wherever the case might be but yet god is still even with all of those barriers doing some phenomenal work there phenomenal uh things because uh the, the indians uh provided we gave them the truth in love mm-hmm. they're already religious we don't need to create a kind of a religious attitude in their life they're already religious as you also mentioned you know that soil is actually prepared soil if we can change or exchange rather the religion and the religiosity for relationship mm-hmm. that also helps us to get a glimpse as to why we see such a tremendous sense of passion you're right i've attended the indian churches and seen preachers that my goodness just so on fire and full of god's word mm-hmm. we see the sense of the sacrifice that people within the indian church are willing to make the kind of persecution quite frankly mm-hmm. that they are subjected to we know especially in in parts of the north along the border with pakistan and areas where there's a stronger islamic influence mm-hmm. it's not uncommon to hear stories of churches that are literally burned down to the ground pastors that have been kidnapped and and beaten and left for death i mean these kinds of stories that almost is reflective of the book of acts early church that level yeah. of persecution right 
taking place in India today. Right, yeah. But alongside it, too, a movement of the Holy Spirit and growth of the church, in spite of the fact that there's not Christian radio, there's not a lot of literacy, things of this sort, many of the, the trappings that we think of in the Western world that are necessary for evangelism, mm-hmm. we see wholly absent from India. And yet, in spite of that, God, by the very power of his Holy Spirit, moving and working amongst his people. So while we see Book of Acts style persecution going on, we also see Book of Acts style Growth, don't we? Multiplication is happening. Yes. Yeah. Um, in India, like uh, persecution is the sign of the church growth. Not only in India, I think if, if you uh, go through the, the history, I mean, from the first century till today. Oh, almost anywhere. If you show anywhere, me a place anywhere. on planet Earth where the church is being persecuted for its faith, pastors are being arrested, evangelists are being jailed, yeah. almost without exception, I'll show you a place where the church is growing by absolutely unfathomable numbers, but mm-hmm. not just numerically, but also there's Spiritually. a spiritual depth yep. uh, that is absolutely almost uh, without comparison. Mm-hmm. There's a love and passion for God and his word and a relationship with him. And again, I don't mean to suggest that this is demeaning of Western styles of Christianity, but if you are a Christian in India, you've counted the cost. You're right. Haven't you? It demands. It demands that there be a price paid. Yes. And yet we know that the rewards are <laughs> in literally you know, out of this world. Yeah. Uh, and so the church is willing to pay that price. That, that's willing. You know, right now, one of our partners who works with us in the southern part of India, um, the last uh, one month, he's received a lot of threats from uh, anti-Christian elements. Mm-hmm. And these could be... Muslim in origin, they could be Hindu in origin. Yes, they could be anybody, but, you know, kind of an anti-Christian. They don't want to see church existing in that part of uh, um, the uh, country. And uh, they threatened him a number of times. And, you know, they also gave him ultimatum saying that, you know, by so-and-so time, if you, I mean, uh, clear this place, we'll be killing you off. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for the last uh, couple of fortnights, he's literally hiding away from those places. Mm -hmm. But his wife gathered strength, courage, and she visited the area, you know, uh, last week just to see how his uh, her church or uh, the, their church members are doing. Are they also threatened? Are they intimidated continuously by these people? So the opposition, threatenings, animosity, prejudice, and all that, you know, or a day-to-day, I mean, like, it's kind of an everyday affair. If you really want to be a good Christian and, you know, uh, uh, magnify Christ through your life. We'll take a brief time out in this juncture in the conversation. We'll come back to more of our look at what God is doing in India today. Our conversation with Pastor Sam from Mission India continues in just a moment here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. We continue our visit today in studio with Pastor Sam. He is here on a brief uh, visit on behalf of Mission India. We mentioned at the start of our conversation today, Pastor Sam, about the phenomenal economic growth that mm-hmm. India has been experiencing. And, and perhaps only second to China yeah. are we seeing uh, just spurts of economic growth that are absolutely unfathomable, certainly comparison to any other part of the world with the current economic challenges globally yeah. that we've been seeing since the economic meltdown of 2008. 
Has this complicated any of the outreach for the church? In other words, are you seeing Western-style materialism coming in that now is complicating the message of the necessity for a relationship with Christ? Um, when uh, 2008, you know, when the financial situation gone into volatile um, situation, like uh, some of the organizations which are exclusively dependent on the Western funding and, you know, things like that. I was told that, you know, they have almost come to a close. There are two different kinds of ministry happens in India. One is a program-oriented. One is a soul-winning oriented. Anything that is program-oriented, you know, once uh, the fund flow stops, they stop. But soul-winning goes on and on. And and uh, this may come as no surprise to you, but it's very much the same way here in North America as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And you also find the one that tends to be more program-oriented is much like the seed sown in the rocky soil. It may flourish for a slight season, or you may see what you think is growth that actually turns out to be a weed. And then the minute a test of a life storm comes along, it's quickly washed out to sea and bears forth no fruit at all. And yet the one that is focused on soul winning mm-hmm. and discipleship and sharing of the gospel of Jesus That's Christ, true. planting God's word, uh, those are the ministries that not only are planted in fertile soil, they not only survive, but they thrive in the end. You're right. What do you think um, is the biggest challenge facing India today? Um, There are three uh, important issues, actually. Number one is literacy, as I mentioned, you know, that's uh, the greatest need in our country today. You know, um, because of uh, illiteracy, you have uh, poverty. Because of poverty, there is a spiritual darkness prevailing. And they're all interconnected. If the Indian rural women or men are educated or make a shift from illiterates to literates, there is a possibility of a social transformation, spiritual transformation and also economical transformation happening. Women are treated... uh, as a substandard human being. Even as we've seen, certainly not all of the caste system disappear, but it certainly has changed very dramatically over the last uh, few decades. Caste system is still existing in some uh, villages, most of the villages in India. Um, You know, uh, but again, the education, you know. It's changing things. Yeah. But you're still noticing extreme degrees of challenges for women women you know mm-hmm. there are um, a lot of atrocities are happening to them um, uh, in the name of dowry you know mm-hmm. uh, it's a biggest uh, social evil you know the government of india has banned a dowry system in 1961 they made a law against it but even then despite of all that you still hear about uh, the dowry deaths almost every day mm-hmm. in some part of country one of the stories that we are mentioning about you know um, you know, who has gone through that agony. There are so many people of that, you know, uh, uh, classification. And uh, some of the Indian women cannot really speak out their pain, speak out their agony. Number one, because they're not educated. Number two, they're not earning members. Number three, the cultural barrier is there. And it's interesting, this this 
this poll that's going on in Indian society today then, because you think of the struggle that women are facing, and yet the influence of so much wealth, because largely of the way the world economy has changed and the the, the creation of the so-called Silicon Valley of India. Mm-hmm. And then you see the influence of, of, of just pure outright secularism through things like so-called Bollywood. Uh, I've seen some of the films and I think, you know, with the exception of maybe some of the dresses that are worn in the music, you would think that these productions are coming out of Universal or Paramount yeah, right. <laughs> in yeah. Hollywood, California, and not in, in New Delhi. So it's interesting the way there's there's a pull for the attention yes. of India in so many ways. And at the same time that we see an increase in wealth and yet not a major shift yet in terms of opportunities or treatment of respect for women – Huge degrees of hunger for spirituality, explosive growth of the church, and yet some aspects of the more mainline denominational church still kind of behind the compound walls. Yes. It's, it's yeah. India today, in many respects, then, economically, spiritually, remains this this very mysterious, convoluted yeah. gathering of, of comparisons and contractions at so many different levels. It's fascinating. I think this is a high time that, you know, these... Uh, compound centered the mainland denominations has to think beyond the box come out with more vigor more passion towards the great commission and uh, when that happens you know the emerging churches and you know the other um, communities you know who who are involved in a kind of uh, evangelization of the unreached peoples in our country um, when that happens we will be able to see that, you know, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, you know, that Jesus is the true living God. Take a moment, if you would, Pastor Sam, and share a bit of your passion with our listeners. If you could have the opportunity to have a chance behind the pulpit at a church here in the Bay Area on a Sunday morning, to share what you would think would be the, the the biggest issue on your heart, the message that you would like to share with the church in America about the church in India. What would that be? What would what would that passion or concern or observation be? My passion and my uh, concern uh, as for the Indian church is concerned today is that they need to come back to Great Commission. As you rightly mentioned, I think, a couple of times in your uh, um, deliberations that you know uh, the acts of apostles has to be repeated it's repeated actually only thing the mainland church has to realize it you know we cannot just keep quiet when things are happening around we cannot be insensitive you know to you know uh, the things that are happening around that becomes foolishness and when we become uh, uh, when we are able to realize the prompting voice of the Holy Spirit that this is the time God is at work in India. I think we have to move forward because there may be a day when the doors will be closed. Mm -hmm. There may be a day when things will get much harder, but now they are wide opened and people are responding more um, rapidly than ever before. And the Church of God back in India mainly the the denominational churches had to realize that this is not the compound that we think about now. It's beyond that. There is ultimately a message here for the church in America, too. 
As Pastor Sam articulates, there is a window of opportunity right now where there is a tremendous sense of of hunger and desire and openness to the gospel, even as we see the push of materialism bearing down upon India in, in so many ways, yet utter degrees of poverty at the same time. And yet the biggest challenge that India faces is no different than the challenge we face here in America or anywhere on planet Earth. And that is a poverty of the heart and a poverty of the soul, the the malnutrition that we experience because we do not know him, we do not serve him, or if we know him, we serve him only within the the confines of the compound. And I think as Pastor Sam is suggesting, it's time to throw open wide the door and understand the need to respond to opportunities to share the gospel and to stand shoulder to shoulder with the church in India, just as we've stood shoulder to shoulder with each other inside the compound, to now do that outside of the compound, to to engage in that appreciation for what it means to not just to have a heartbeat and a passion for Judea, but then understand that the Great Commission didn't end there. It began there, as we are then mandated to move from Judea to Samaria and to India and the uttermost parts of the earth. If you'd like to find out more information about the work of Pastor Sam and the amazing things that God is doing throughout the entire continent of India, let me direct you toward Mission India's website. It's an easy one to remember. That's missionindia.org, missionindia.org. If something you've heard in today's conversation with Pastor Sam has really touched your heart and you'd like to see and explore ways in which you and or your church congregation can stand shoulder to shoulder with people like Pastor Sam and the work that God is doing in the continent of India today, why don't you consider reaching out to Mission India? They've got a speaker's bureau that could happily provide someone to come to your church and share more of not just the amazing things that God is doing in India today, but the amazing opportunity that the Lord and responsibility places before us today to be engaged in, again, sharing of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, it isn't how hard we work to try to reach up to God. It's the understanding that God came down that will change the world. More information again on the web at missionindia.org. That's missionindia.org. And Pastor Sam, we so much appreciate you taking some time uh, out of your travel schedule to be with us here. Welcome again to America. And we're going to be praying for you and your ministry there. Uh, Godspeed and keep up the good work. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a number of years ago I had the opportunity to sit down with my dad and have kind of one of those adult-to-adult, father-to-son, heart-to-heart talks. And I I had to admit to him, albeit perhaps a bit begrudgingly, that I was amazed at how, how smart he had become down through the years. You know, it seems like when we're teenagers, our parents just don't know a thing, and we have all the answers. Then as we grow up and begin to get into this world of life and have our own experiences and eventually go on to raise our own families, we come to find out that Dad, in fact, wasn't all that dumb after all. In fact, he was a pretty smart guy. 
We set that as kind of the tone for the beginning of our conversation today with a voice that's certainly familiar to KFAX listeners. Um, in addition to his responsibilities as the co-host of the uh, Daily Focus on the Family broadcast uh, heard here on KFAX, uh, he's also got a, a budding writing career going on, and uh, one of his latest books is called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, and the Great Advice Just in Time for Father's Day. Pleased to have join us on the program this afternoon, the co-host of Focus on the Family's Daily broadcast, and uh Author and perhaps most importantly, father and husband, John Fuller. John, great to have you with us. Craig, thank you for uh, inviting me. And you're right. Uh, of all the titles I've had throughout the years, Daddy is the best one. And isn't that amazing, you know, because often we guys identify ourselves certainly as husbands and as fathers, but then, of course, we have to get the career in there. And, and, and so much of our workday, of course, uh, 8, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes, uh, is wrapped up in our identity that oftentimes we fail to recognize that perhaps one of the most important roles we have, certainly when it comes to the job that God has given us, is that of father. It is, and it's an irreplaceable job. I mean, guys don't want to admit this, but we're pretty much replaceable at work. I mean, there aren't many of us who are indispensable and irreplaceable. But at home, uh, my kids have one dad, and that's it. And um, and if I don't show up for that job, if I don't throw myself into that one with as much energy and enthusiasm as I do uh, my real day job, if you will, or uh, my golf game, or whatever the side hobby is, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss out on a great deal of, of the richness of the journey of parenting, and my kids are going to be shorted too, and they're not going to get the kinds of things that I can give them anywhere else. Now, you speak to this with some degree of authority as a father of six. Um, when you first got into this, um, when uh, you and, and your wife, Dina, were about to have the first child after a, a great deal of effort, we might add, uh, I'm sure, John, there must have been a sense of fear and, and, and amazement and, and a little bit of trepidation in all of us. But then, too, was there a little bit of an idea that, you know, this can't be all that difficult? I mean, after all, you know, my dad raised me and I didn't turn out all that bad. <laughs> How did you know? Yeah, and, and let me say that if I have any expertise, it's not because I've written a book. It's because for 20 years I've been running into brick walls and stubbing my toe and making mistakes left and right as a father. So uh, my expertise is probably probably born more out of failure than anything else. Um, no, I think I think I was guilty of that, uh, to answer the question directly. I, I thought um, kind of naively that, yeah, this is one more thing that we do. We become dads. And that you can just kind of check that off the list or move on, and that's not really the case. Uh, it was a lot of change. It was like a Scud missile coming out and just blowing up my world. Uh, all of my expectations about how the relationship with my wife was going to continue on, um, my expectations about my job performance, my expectations about hobbies, all of that was out the window when Dakota was born uh, almost 24 years ago now. It was... It was it was a change, and it was a hard change, but it was a good change as I learned to navigate it and deal with it. And I guess navigation, I'm glad you choose that word, John, because some, so often I think some guys think that, well, I'll just go out and take a couple of parenting classes or read a book or think what my dad would have done and either copy it or in some cases think of that, what dad would have done and do the opposite. You know, But a lot of this is really navigation, isn't it? I mean, there, it, it, the baby didn't show up. I mean, the hospital bill came along with it, but there was no manual, was there? Yeah, they, the kids don't read those books anyway, and so it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it, it, the, first the first chapter of my book is called Great Expectations, because I think that really does 
that's where we have to start. As a new dad, we have to get our expectations in order and just ask ourselves, as I go into this, what, what exactly am I forgetting? And, and what are some of my hang-ups about this? I mean, most guys don't want to fail, and most of us, I think, feel uh, uh, that failure is imminent as a new dad because uh, the, the, the baby doesn't react like I thought babies reacted, and this is a lot harder than I thought, and I'm now sleep-deprived, and my wife is sleep-deprived, and she's got hormonal changes coming off of the pregnancy if she gave birth. Um, there are all sorts of communication issues, um, man, I, this thing just has loser written all over it. So I don't run toward it. I run away from it. Well, if you expect it's going to be hard, if you expect it's going to be a, a great lifelong journey to be a dad, but that it's a wonderfully rich experience and it's, uh, it's a great gift from God to entrust a child into your care and that this little kid's going to be used by God to chisel all the rough edges off of me and make me more like Jesus, then it's, it's a whole different ballgame then. Now, your book, John, uh, First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, really uh, culminates in your years of experience being the father of six uh, and being able to kind of help uh, first-time dads in particular uh, get the priorities straight and maybe learn them a thing or two, as my, my grandmother used to say. Mm, yeah, One of the points that you mentioned very early on is uh, babies are easy. I mean, sometimes, you know, outside of the 3 o'clock feedings and the interrupted sleep and the, the major change in lifestyle that suddenly happens, uh, we get used to it early on and then begin to think, oh, well, it can only get easier. It can't get any worse. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, it sounds like a voice of experience right there. Um, yeah, I, I think every season has been good. My, my two oldest are adults. They're out of the house. And uh, my third child that just turned 18, we still have 16, 13, and 8-year-old in the house. So I'm still living with a lot of younger and, and teenage uh, things. I've got to say that that your babies are probably one of the easier stages. Um, I hate telling a new dad that because at times it feels like this is so hard. Um, but the rewards increase as the difficulty increases. And uh, sometimes I'll tell someone, I have three teenage daughters in my home. Pray for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I also follow that up real quickly with, a, you know, I love those girls so much. And I'm not sure there's anything better than when they say goodnight, they come up and they want their hug and their little kiss on the forehead. That, to me, is, uh, that's, that's priceless right there. I can't buy that kind of affection and love from a child. And, and those teen years are precious when the girls still come my way and, and look for my advice and seek out their daddy. So every season is great. Babying is hard, because you're, especially for your first time dad, if you're a first time dad, because you don't know what to expect and how to, how to deal with all the, the issues that newborns have. But once you get the hang of it, it's pretty easy. But it does become, as we move along, there are certain complexities that are inherent to all of this, aren't there? I mean, number one, obviously, for growing families, you're adding not just child number one, who now has grown and gone through the baby years and maybe is either a toddler or a little bit further along. Now along comes child number two. Now there's a balancing act between the two. And so as there is the, the exponential growth of the family and the responsibilities, one of the other things, too, that I think oftentimes, John, becomes a major hang-up for, for younger dads that are kind of still figuring all of this out is – 
We see then, too, an exponential growth in a lot of the demands outside of the house, meaning that we're beginning to hit the pace in the career and the job, and maybe we're moving from you know entry-level positions to middle and upper management, more responsibility. Then, too, we're thinking, well, gee, the family's getting bigger. There are more demands on my time, more people that are counting upon me. I've got to bring the bread in because, you know, this is not just child-rearing expenses. Someday there's going to be education costs and weddings and all of these things. And so suddenly, in addition to a bigger demand for our time in the house as husband and father, there are oftentimes, too, John, lots of demands for our time and attention outside of the house. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Craig, because um, I've observed the very same thing, and it's a concern to me, and I've experienced the very same thing. Um, You know, we had one and then two and then three children, and uh, the responsibilities at work were great. Uh, I mean, I'm working at a ministry. I know that that uh, that it's it's valuable for me to pour into kingdom work, and yet I feel the tug at home, and and at the same time, uh, I've got single friends uh, who are in their twenties and thirties, and they're doing things like running marathons, and I want to do that, and it, there is a jumble of stuff going on there. And uh, if I can share just personally, I, I came face to face with priorities and with the challenges of work and career, and uh, when my oldest was about eight, he. Uh, he was really uh, acting up, and we were having a hard time with some of his some of his behaviors, and uh, so much so that we sought out a counselor here at Focus on the Family. We talked to one of the Focus counselors for about an hour, and uh, she she listened to us and asked some questions, and then she turned to me and she just said, "John, I think your son is acting up because he wants more of you. Mm. You're not home very much." You're working on your master's degree, and that's on top of a pretty intense full-time job working on the radio programming at Focus on the Family. So, um, you know, you just need to throttle back. And I, I, I was nailed. <laughs> I mean, come, come on, I work at a family ministry. I know family stuff, but I was guilty of doing too much outside the home. And, and some of that was a search for significance, if I can be honest with you. Some of that was a need to kind of, you know, hold my, pull my weight and hold my own against peers who were doing some things. But some of it was, uh, I think, a right passion to, to get equipped to do the next things that I thought God had for us as a family in the kingdom. Uh, still, I had to just reset and say, wait a minute, what's really important here? And I had to kind of push back on some things so that I could spend more time with my son because he needed me, and he was only eight once. Uh, if I missed that window, he was on to nine and then ten. It, uh, I would have missed him altogether if I wasn't careful. And that's such a critical point, and I want to pause right here because th- this is a point that needs to be really underscored. Because as John Fuller points out, it is easy to kind of get caught up in not only the striving for significance, but you feel like you're doing things that are of critical importance for the family, bringing home the bacon, all of that. And yet this time only comes once, and it comes so rapidly. And for a lot of guys that might say, well, gee, but... What about some time for me? I mean, there's these hobbies that I'm involved with, and I'm trying to work on the golf game, and I've got demands on me, not only your demands on me, not only at work, but but the men's fellowship and responsibilities as church, as a member of the board of deacons. I just want to be able to squeeze it all in together. You get one shot at doing this right, guys. If you've just joined our conversation, a visit today with John Fuller from Focus on the Family. The book... First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, just in time for Father's Day, published by Moody, and you can get it through John's blog. It's easy. Just go to johnfullerblog.com. That's johnfullerblog.com. When we come back, learning to balance the time and prioritize for first-time dads. It's all the stuff you need to know as this edition of Lifeline continues. <laughs> 